Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Exodus. Exodus 34, verses 1 through 6. Those of you wondering why we are in Exodus and not in Colossians, um, the sermon that would have followed, or that would have come this week, is not done yet. It's still cooking. I have to ruminate on some uh, things and make some decisions that I haven't yet landed on. And I thought, rather than give you all a half-baked sermon, I'll give you one from uh, another text where there's more certainty in my mind of what's, uh, what's going on there. And so um, we're taking a break this week. And the next week, we want to invite you all to come for World Mission Sunday. For me, that is an extremely important um, Sunday in our church calendar, a time where we dedicate uh, an entire service to thinking of, of God's global purposes and, and, and presenting to you all strategies and, and uh, proposals for engaging in uh, world mission and uh, that has yielded over the years uh, our time in Malay our recent mission trip to Malaysia our uh, giving of the uh, our, our, our ability to give and uh, uh, produce um, several Bibles for the Aroma Bible project and uh, and also now we think of our one of our own uh, who is in um, Richmond training for his mission assignment uh, coming up in the new year uh, we are thankful for God and his call to this church to to engage in the work of global mission and so i i, I uh, encourage you to come ready for that that is an extremely important service it also is the kickoff to our holiday um, and christmas and advent season where we uh, celebrate the birth of our lord the the incarnation of jesus our savior God becoming man so that man may live forever in him. So uh, look forward to all that is taking place here. But for now, we break off a little from the, the Colossian study, and we're going to look at uh, Exodus 34, verses 1 through 6. And we're specifically going to just look at verse 6. Um, just something that has been a precious truth to me that I have I've known all along, but it's in the last six or so months that has really just sort of... Um, uh, taken deep root in me is something that I have, have really uh, uh, just become, it's moved to the forefront of my awareness. Uh, again, I, I think you all can understand that something that you know in the back of your mind, but once it's pushed forward into the, uh, the front area of your thoughts and you just realize this is so much more important than I was giving it uh, recognition in the past and that's kind of where we're at here and what I want to share with you here in Exodus chapter 34. So read with me uh, or follow along with me as we hear the word of the Lord through his servant, the prophet Moses. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning, uh, I'm sorry, the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the uh, mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hands two tablets of stone. 
the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him and proclaimed, uh, stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray and then consider its meaning. Our great God, as we come to this, your word, as we look to its meaning, as we listen attentively for you to speak by your spirit through your word, I pray that you would give us an understanding of the sense of what is being proclaimed here, that we would know your character, that we know your ways, and that we would rejoice in the God of our salvation, that we would rest securely in the love of of our great God, that we would know that you are a loving, compassionate, merciful God. And we can come to you broken and shattered in our sin. And we will find in you shelter, forgiveness, mercy. Through our our Savior Jesus Christ, we have adoption as sons and daughters of God eternal life in Him, and all this because you are the Lord, abounding in steadfast love. Help us, Lord, to see that truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the, again, this is something that I've known. I've, I've, I've always known that God is love. And from time to time, you experience in your Christian walk, you experience this a fresh awareness of God's, of God's love and of His mercy towards you. Maybe you're in a period of sin. Maybe you're in a period of, of trial and testing. And God moves in very clearly and His presence is felt, though He's always with you, but His presence is felt or manifested in a, in a, in a unique way that you know that God is near to me. He is showing me fatherly, tenderly care and mercy despite my sin, despite my failures. He, he, and you have these periodic um, awarenesses. But for me this year, in the, in the past six or so months, it's sort, of, it's sort of been, as I said earlier, just pushed forward in my mind that this is a primary, um, essential truth that cannot be that cannot be relegated or, 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 or moved down into a uh, secondary or even a third level truth. This must be a primary truth, the love of God and His mercy. So I thought as I was thinking about and preparing and making the decision, do I go with the Colossians study and just and, and give you the, the, the half-baked, undercooked sermon, or do I set that aside, think and meditate on that for a little bit longer, and then give you something, and I asked, well, what, what should I, what should, and I made the decision, it's not right to give the half-baked sermon, so what do I do? And then something jogged into my memory, um, just this truth that I've been, been uh, just wrestling with this past year. And so I, I thought, let's go to Exodus 34, and, and, and to understand why I decided to go there, we have to know the background information to Exodus 34. Exodus 32 tells of how Moses, he is up in the mountain. He is talking to God. So in, in chapter 19, God descends onto Mount Sinai in this, in this wonderful, picturesque um, uh, uh, image of him coming down in this thundercloud. 
and all in the flashes of lightning and the and the rumbles of thunder and the and, he, and his his holy presence is so um, is manifested so uh, uh, acutely that that the the mountain trembles and quakes um, as he descends on it and the people of Israel at the foot of the mountain are so terrified at the holy presence of the of of the God who is approaching them who is addressing them that they asked to Mo, they asked to Moses and request of him don't let God speak to us the way that he did on the mountain there anymore it terrifies them so they had this vision this image of God coming down on the mountain they've already seen God in Exodus 14 deliver them out of slavery in Egypt. They saw the, the ten plagues and the power and the might of God. Then they were, they were delivered by God out of slavery in Egypt. The Egyptians, though, changed their mind after they had initially let them go. They chased after them, and God parted the Red Sea, allowed them, the people of Israel to cross the Red Sea on dry land, and God was defending them. Uh, by he, was, he, he manifested himself in the pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So this, this pillar... Uh, or this, you know, maybe this, this, you know, sort of like a cyclone or a cylinder of God's presence in the form of this heavy cloud of smoke or, or at night, this blazing fire. He is defending his people from the Egyptians in this pillar as they are crossing the Red Sea. And once they cross the Red Sea, the Egyptians follow suit and they follow through the, uh, through the, the parting of the Red Sea and God closes it in on them and drowning Pharaoh and his armies. He defends them. He is the mighty warrior God. They see all of this. They see God in Exodus 17 produce water from the rock, rock that spews forth water. That's, that's impossible. It's miraculous. God brings forth enough water to, to water an entire nation out of a rock, despite the fact that they were grumbling and accusing God of bringing them out into the desert to kill them. So all these visuals, all these scenes of Israel seeing God in his majestic glory while Moses is on the mountain, he's on the mountaintop for 40 days and 40 nights, Giving the, being given the law from God's hand of God instructing him of how the people are to live and act under in covenant uh, 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 relationship to God, whereby he has promised, I will be your God and you will be my people. And this is how you live under me. The people of Israel, they get bored and they get distracted. And it shows and, they, and it manifests where their hearts truly are. They see God descend on the mountain. Moses is up there, and it's only been a month and ten days. And they say to Aaron, Moses' brother, make us a God. We don't know what happened to Moses. Well, he's up there in the mountain, and God is speaking to him. And they saw the glory cloud descend, and yet they say, this is, this is the hardness of hearts, that takes root in unbelief. Some of you may wonder, why do I, why don't I have any spiritual vibrancy? I see what other people live like. I see, I hear their prayers. I see them in worship and I see the, their faces of, of, of gladness and joy and thanksgiving and worship of God. And this is all just nothing to me. Perhaps you are like the people of Israel whose hearts, their mouths honor God, but their hearts are far from Him. And when the opportunity arises, you'll quickly turn to some other thing to be your ultimately rea ultimate reality. And the people turn to Aaron and say, Make us a God. And Aaron obliges them. Take all the gold 
that you gained from Egypt. God also moved in the hearts of the Egyptians that they, as the Israelites were leaving, the Egyptians gave them gold and silver and jewels, precious things to supply their needs on their journeys. And so um, he says, bring all the gold that you, that you got from the Egyptians. And they formed a calf. And they said, this is your God. They formed an animal that symbolized strength and power. But the God that they worship is a God who does not manifest himself in a phys- did not manifest himself in physical form. He is spirit. He is not, he is not creature. He is not to be worshipped in images. He is to be worshipped and honored the way that he commands. And he commands, no, make no images. That's one of the laws of the, of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no graven images. And yet they do that still. They make a golden calf and say, this is the God who delivered you out of Egypt. They saw the glory cloud of that God, descend, of the true God who delivered them out of Egypt, descend on the mountain, and yet they had the audacity to say, this golden calf that we shaped, we took the jewels of Egypt, melted them down, and you know our goldsmiths, our uh, people skilled in the metallurgical arts, they, they shaped and formed it, and they were there they were. There he is. Is this really the God that drew them out of Egypt? But that's where their hearts turn. The one true God, the God they could not see, the God that they could only hear, and they trembled at His voice and His power. They turned away from that God in only 40 days. It does not take long. It does not take long for things to go sour. Those of you who are coasting in your Christian walk, those of you who are willing to say, you know what, I'm tired, I'm going I'm to skip this, I'm going to skip that, and just sort of thinking that, you know, I've got enough spiritual reserves that if I skip a day of prayer, skip a day of you know, attending to the Bible, if I, if, I don't, if I take this month off, it's the holidays, Thursday, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, they understand if I, you know, focus on my family, it doesn't take long for our hearts to turn away from the living God, even with the vivid visuals that he provides of his saving work. They live the reality. They walk, their memory, they, their, their clothes are possibly wet as an exaggeration, still moist from walking through the dry land, the, 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 the Red Sea and the spray from the sea. They could possibly still smell the salt air surrounding them in the, in the walls that were made of water. And yet they say, this is our God. So quickly does our, do our hearts turn away from him. And so God uh, uh, makes aware to Moses because he sees all things. Go down and deal with this people. They are a stiff-necked people. And Moses goes down. He throws down the tablets that God had written the law on. Judgment falls on them. A partial judgment falls on them. And then Moses goes and he intercedes with God for the, on behalf of the people because God says to them, I will not take them into the promised land. They will go into the promised land, but I will not go with them. I will not go as their God. They are stiff-necked, sinful people. I will send my angel, and my angel will go. He'll give them the land, but I will not be their God. And for Moses, he says, that's, that's not going to fly. That can't fly. Now, some of us, when we think about our faith, we think about what the faith offers us. 
And some of that is even skewed and missed. But for American Christianity, we, for good or for ill, and it's for ill, so spoiler alert, it's for ill, we tend to think the Christian life gives us ease, ease comfort, promises that we can hold to, uh, we can pers- it gives us the freedom to pursue our own agendas just as long as we keep one foot in, in church, we can pursue whatever goals and agendas we want to have. And so in American Christianity, comfort, ease, the good life, that is what we believe is the highest goal and aim of all that we do. And so a word like this from from God to Moses may not seem like a bad thing. So you're saying, I still get the promised land. I still get deliverance, you know, from I was once a slave. Now I could be brought into a land of my own, become a landowner, build wealth. Uh, This land is flowing with milk and honey. So I'm going to be able to establish myself and my children's future and their children's future. And I'm, I'm going to have the good life. It's just that God won't be with me. Okay, because that God is intrusive. That God is inconvenient. So if I can have everything that he offers me without having him, eh. they say, and somebody would never say it that way. But when it comes to, do you actually attend and fellowship with the living God, really attend and fellowship with him in prayer and in hearing him speak, and in reading his word, and serving him, and obeying him, of, of putting your life in order under the commands and precepts of God, if you were to analyze yourself and say, no, that, that's uh, too much of my life would have to change if I brought my life in conformity unto God, then you may be more like the Israelites worshiping the golden calf than you think and you may realize. But there's good news even for you because Moses intercedes. He prays to God on behalf of the people, recognizing they are a stiff-necked people. They don't deserve what you have. They don't deserve you as their God. But your name deserves to be upheld. And if you do not go with them into the, de- into the promised land, then the Egyptians, now Moses is not manipulating God. He is working out in his mind and articulating the ultimate truth and the ultimate goal and ambition of his heart, which is the glory of God. God, if you abandon this people, then the Egyptians can laugh at them and laugh at you. You did not go with them to the land. You abandoned them. You rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. You should have left them there. Because you did not go with them. And ultimately, that is what their rescue and their redemption was all about, that you can bring them to yourself. So this stiff-necked people, this rebellious people, please, if you don't go with them, don't even send us. Don't give us the land. The land is meaningless and nothing without God. Perhaps some of you think about heaven and you think about the peace. You think about, (coughs) you know, living a life without sin and without failure. (coughs) Perhaps a life without stress. 
a life of, 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 of eternal joy and endless gladness. And you think, that's great. I want that. But perhaps never once in your mind does it cross that all that is really good, desirable. But the greatest reality of heaven is that the dwelling place of God is with man. He shall be their God and I, we shall be his people, that I will be with him. That's, and, and, perhaps, and that's fleshed out in perhaps the times that you come to church. You don't think or prepare yourself to be in the presence of God you ready yourself to either receive or to, to receive a spiritual jump start or to sort of give you fodder for critique of why things aren't going the way that you want them to in the life. Either way, it's anything but the presence of God, the glory of God, which drives you in your assessment of how things go when the people gather, the people of God gather for his corporate worship. So Moses is saying to God, don't even give us the foretaste of heaven, as it were. That's essentially what the promised land is to be, a foretaste of heaven. Don't even give us that if you are not with us. I don't want the peace and the land that flows with milk and honey. I don't want a homestead and a, and a house and, a, uh, 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 and goats and sheeps and whatnots. Is, if it doesn't, and farmland and, and, and wheat and, and corn or whatever it is that, that, that grows in that, in that region, I don't want that if we do not have the God who delivered us out of slavery in Egypt. If I don't have this God, I don't want I don't want all the trappings that come with him. I want God and God alone. He is my satisfaction and joy. And so Moses intercedes. And God, on the basis of that intercession, he says, I will go with you. You have found favor in my sight. That's grace. I will go. You don't deserve it. They deserve to be wiped off the face of the earth and, start, and, and God should start again with a different people, but instead he shows them grace. He agrees and relents. Moses didn't have to convince God of this. God is using this to bring out of Moses that intercessory um, ministry whereby he stands between God and man and sinful man and pleads to God, please show them mercy and grace. Moses, though, is an imperfect intercessor, for he himself is a man of sin, and he indeed doesn't go into the promised land because of his sin. A perfect, fully righteous and faithful intercessor comes, and he forever stands in our place, pleading his blood and on our behalf, those of us who are in Christ. And we receive the promises on the basis of his intercessory ministry, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. But as Moses receives this word from God, I will go with you. Moses then says, show me your glory. I'm already here. I stuck my neck out. May as well go for, may as well go big. Show me your glory. He pleads on behalf of God's glory to, to go with his people. God relents. He says, so let me see it all. Let me see it. He loves the Lord top to bottom. He loves the Lord and he just wants to see a glimpse of the beauty and the glory and the grandeur and the majesty of God. 
All that he's already seen, he knows. I've only seen a part of it. I want to see the full, unfiltered glory of God. And God says, but you can't. You can't see my glory. This is mercy. This isn't God being like, nope, nope. Yeah, you know, I, I, you can convince me for a little bit, but you can't. He's saying, you can't. My glory is dangerous to you because you're sinful. Your sin means that if my glory is on display, it means also my judgment falls on you. For that is part of my glory is my holiness and my righteous response against sin. But here's what I'll do for you. I'll put you, I'll put you in this place where there's a rock and it'll cover you. And I'll place my hand in front of you and that rock. So you have the covering of the rock and then you have the covering of my, you know, my metaphorical hand. And I'll pass by you. My glory will pass by you. You can't see it. You'll be covered by the rock. But as it passes by you, when I'm done, you can peek out and see the backside of the glory. And this is what we read, is what's happening. He tells Moses to come, and Moses shows up. And what is part of God's glory as he passes by? The proclamation of his name. The Lord, the Lord. Notice, it's, all in, it's in all caps, verse, verse 5 and 6. The Lord descended on the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord, all caps, passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, all caps, the Lord. That is the name that he gave to Moses in Exodus 3 when Moses, when he tells him he's going to rescue his people out of Egypt and he's going to send them to them to proclaim that coming rescue and salvation. And Moses asked him, whom shall I say is sending me? And he says, I am that I am the Lord. That's the name that he gives him. Is, is, it's a verb. This self-existent, self-sustaining, eternal one. And Moses is told. So part of the glory passing by Moses is a proclamation of his name. Well, okay, so if I were to play this out, let's pretend that I have some measure of glory. You have to pretend I know. Indulge me. And part of me walked out and said, here's part of my glory, Tim. Tim, I sound ridiculous because there's no, there, there's, there's no glory in my name. My name is just, it's just Tim. Matter of fact, some of you don't know, and I'm going to tell this, is, I hope this doesn't disrupt, disrupt you too much. I don't have a middle name. I have a middle initial. I am Timothy J. Hawkins. It stands for nothing. It never has. All it has ever been is that letter J. My dad, my mom could not think of a middle name. So they came up with just J. Period. The hope was to become TJ. I'm never going to be TJ. I'll never answer to you. Try as you may. <laughs> what frustrates me about that name, though, more too, is that my half-sister, my older half-sister, from my dad's first marriage, she is named Jennifer J. So she's Jennifer J. Felicito. She was once Jennifer J. Hawkins. But she has the same problem. She doesn't have a middle name. She just has a middle initial. So my dad could not think of a middle name twice, and so he just gave the two kids the same middle initial. So... Yay, me. All right, there you have it. That's my digression. Okay. My name is not glorious. My name is not a verb. My name was even a half-thought in my parents' mind, apparently. But God's name is glorious. Because God, in the ancient world, remember this, in the ancient world, 
Your name either disclosed your character or the circumstances that you were born into or the hopes of your parents for your future. Well, God, God was never born, so his parents didn't name him. And, he, you know, God does not have hopes for the future because he is God. He is, he is timeless and the, and the eternal one. So his name discloses his character. And he attaches to his name that phrase, that clause, the Lord, the Lord. So the eternal one, the self-existent one, abounding in love. So verse 6, um, the Lord passed before him, proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the name he proclaims in the midst of Israel's sin and rebellion in the golden calf incident. He is telling Moses, you want to see my glory? As it passes by you, here's a part of my glory. Here's an aspect of my glory, my own name. I am merciful. I am gracious. So I do not give what is deserved to those who deserve it, mainly justice. That is my mercy. I give that which they do not deserve to those who do not deserve it. That is my grace. And I am slow to anger. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't get this wrong. There is the reality of God's righteous anger and wrath. That is a reality. Sin will sin merits God's judgment. It would be a just judgment, not a not a not a not an ounce too much and not an ounce too little of judgment in reference to the weight of your sin. But it will be meted out. He does not allow sins to fall on the ground unpunished. But he is slow in his righteous anger being expressed. Slow. His anger must be aroused. His anger is not... So, so the other day, I was on 78th, and there's a situation at a light where... A person was coming in, like uh, uh, it was at 78th and 49th Street. A person was like coming in, and they had already sort of made their their move to to cut me off. And so I was, I was waiting for them. Well, the car behind me, as soon as the light turned green, started just blowing their horn. That person was not slow to anger. It was quite clear what was going on. I was letting this person in uh, because they had already made their move. And, but as soon as the light turns green, fists are in the air and they're, ba they're banging their horn, that person is not slow to anger. Not even reasonable to anger in any way, because I understand driving makes us angry, especially here in Pinellas County. But uh, not slow to anger. There are some people that they are just, they, you know, even if, you know, they, their first response is, I'm going to get angry at this, and then they have to learn that, oh, wait, no, that was silly of me. It's just their impulse, anger. It's like a trigger, boom, anger. Doesn't, it just... You know, they're like a mousetrap, quickly snapped and triggered and boom, and their anger is just unleashed. But God's anger is slow. He's not this, he's not this low, he's not this like burning fire of, of wrath just waiting to be unleashed, this pressure building and building. 
He is slow to his anger. But he abounds in steadfast love. So again, in the context of Israel's sin, he is giving Moses a picture of his glory, and he is saying, my glory includes my name, which is my character. And my character is such that if I am quick to anything, it is steadfast love and faithfulness. That is like the mousetrap. Just, just run to it. It's snapped into place. My love and my faithfulness, quick, and I abound. And with that, but my anger is slow. It is there, but it's slow. And so this is the precious truth that I've had to learn, for I am a sinner. Every day I sin. Some days I feel like that's the only thing I have ever done is sinned. And then I receive mercy from God's hand. Not mercy like sometimes I envision it. You know, if there'd be in my mailbox, you know, $20,000 just out of nowhere. If you, if you guys want to accommodate that, just feel free. I'll give you my address. Um, but, you know, I can think that's, that's not the type of compassion or the love that, I, that, that he shows. But in the midst of my sin where I feel dirty, unclean, I don't even want to look up. I, I kind of maybe avoid God in prayer because I feel ashamed of myself. And it's like God breaks through that fog and that cloud of my guilt pushes his, so to speak, his face into mine and says, look at me, child. I am abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I am slow to anger. You are covered in the righteousness of my son, Jesus. My wrath was satisfied on him. I love you. Rise up. Walk by faith. Turn from this sin, walk by faith, for I love you. And I have to remember this. And this is why it's so important to push it into the forefront. I think, we, I think some of us have no problem of thanking God, of thanking God as the angry God, of the God. Now, again, that is not to say he is never angry. It is inappropriate. That is an imbalance to say God is never angry, for he is. Even when our sins were placed on his son, God punished Jesus. His anger against our sin was placed on him. Now, he was not angry at Jesus. He was angry at our sin, and Jesus became our sin bearer, and that anger and wrath poured out onto him. Jesus prayed in the garden, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. The cup language goes back to the prophetic um, uh, portion of the Old Testament where it is described that the cup of God's wrath would be poured out and Jesus is about to drink that cup and he asks if God could remove it. If there's any other way, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath. So God is there is anger as one of God's attributes, but that anger must be aroused. He is slow to it. He is patient, long-suffering. His holiness and His righteousness and His, his eternal wisdom and power means He is in utter, complete self-control. 
He is not like the man in the pickup truck who just can't stand the idea that one more car is going to get through the traffic light before he does. Ah, I can't stand it. Anger, wrath, kill, 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 kill is, is God's right. But instead, he is slow to anger. That does not mean that he is foolish and a chump. I myself may be slow to anger in certain instances, just because in my home that I should be angry at. Perhaps my children are misbehaving, and I just don't know that they're misbehaving. Like last night, not a big deal, but I was studying in the living room, sent them to my bedroom because they wanted to watch some TV as I went to my bedroom, and I go in, they were quiet and well-behaved, and I look in, and they just wrecked my room. But They did it silently. So I was like, okay, I was unaware that I should have been angry at what they were doing in here because they were smart. They did it quietly. They had all the fun they can imagine just quietly so that I did not know about it. It is not that God is unaware. He is fully aware. But his ang- he is slow to, the point, to that point of anger. Again, not because he is ignorant, not because his character has some sort of flawed defect to it. Some of us could be slow to anger, and it is unrighteous to do so. You see uh, someone that, is, that you have influence or, 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 or something that they're doing things that are, that are harmful to others, harmful to themselves, and you're just like, well, you know, let's give the benefit of the doubt. Let's, you make every excuse. You don't, do anything that you're, you don't do anything to intervene. And after a while, it, it, people are right to say, hey, you're not helping this situation. You have the ability to put a stop to this. Why don't you put a stop to this? And you're like, well, you know, you're just indulgent. God is also not indulgent. That is very clear for one of his responses in the golden calf incident is to bring a severe judgment against the people. He is not indulgent on them. He is just slow to his anger because of his compassion and his mercy and his love that he is abounding in. He is faithful to his promises And we who sin against him, we are benefactors to his slowness to anger, his love and his compassion. It is not infinite slowness to anger. That anger will eventually rise up, and those who remain lost and in their sin outside of Christ will find his anger falls on them in the final judgment. But for now, hear this word. God abounds in love. Some of you are at odds with God in your mind. You, you, you're, if you look back to Colossians uh, 23, uh, that you, you know, uh, 20, 21, 22, and 23, that you are once alien, you're, that you are alienated from God, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. You look at God and you think ill of Him. You are hostile towards Him. You're alienated from Him, and your deeds are wicked. And you're waiting for God to make it right with you, to come and apologize and to settle the matter with you and to maybe even grovel at your feet. You are angry at him. You disdain him. But his compassion towards you is such. He is drawing you. He is seeking you to save you. If you are hearing these words and you are in that state of rebellion and and separation from God and your alienation, your hostility to mine, and you're doing of evil deeds, hear this word. This God whom you are hostile to, you are alienated from, he loves you, and he abounds with love for you, and he has sent his son to die for you. 
in order that if you believe on His Son, Jesus, on the saving work that Jesus took your place and placed your sin upon Himself and took God's wrath against your sin and also gave you His righteous, obedient life so that you could be credited with the life of Christ and Christ's life was credited with your sinful life and He paid the penalty for your sin and gave you the full blessing of His obedience, you can know this abounding love of God and His mercy and His compassion and His grace. Fall on Him. Repent and turn from your sins and believe and be saved. To my Christian brothers and sisters, remember this. We are sinners. We do things that, are, that should arouse God's anger and His wrath but His compassion and His mercy, His graciousness, His name tells us that His first inclination is not to snuff you out, but to show you grace and compassion. He loves you. So when we sin, yesterday, we, we got a, back in April, we got a, a dog, a puppy, and he's still in his puppy state, though he's in an, an adult dog body. He's in a puppy state. And he, he, he obsesses over our cat. And the only thing in the world that he, that he really loves to death is our cat. And our cat hates him beyond, beyond communication. It's just he hates him. Well, our, our dog and our cat met each other once. And our dog lacerated the inner part of his thigh. It was expensive and pricey and sad. And, um, but he's, and so we're trying to learn, figure out how to keep them coexisting in the same house without ever having to go back to the vet again. And so we're trying to reinforce our dog. When your instinct comes to go and go and get the cat, go and get the, um, the cat, we've got to stifle that, that instinct, you know. God is not like our idiot dog, Augustine, who sees cat and says, oh, give me cat, 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 cat. I can't, I can't not have cat. God is not like he sees your sin and says, sin, wrath, 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 I gotta have wrath. Let me go get it with wrath. Rather, in one sense, and this is not to make light of God, take that same idiot dog who has to have cat. God sees you and he wants to give you his instinct, his, his impulse is love and mercy. So do not hide from him. Oh, I know why I was given that analogy. Yesterday, he, his impulse went bad. He chased after the cat, and I yelled at him. I said, no, we've been doing positive reinforcement, but that time I had to say no. And he slunk and hid under the table and avoided me for a while. When we sin, we don't have to be like, like that, like Augustine, hiding and in shame and not understanding why things are the way that he is, they are and you know, avoiding my gaze and avoiding my, any possible further discipline. We can go boldly to God, even in our sin, for we know that in Christ we have mercy secured in Him and His love is on full display. Go to God in love, knowing that He and His impulse towards you is not wrath, but love and mercy. Christian, let this move to the forefront. When you picture God, picture the God of love, and then 
how easily your Bibles will open if you believe the one, what I'm about to read are words of love from a God who knows everything about me. And yet he has shown me mercy in his son, Jesus. I can go to these words and they will, they will pierce through. They will show my sin. They will show my failure, but they will also show of his mercy and his love. When you want to, when you, when you think about prayer, it's like, I don't know. I don't know the words to say. I don't know what to do. I might doze off. I might drift into thought. Pray, pray still. One image that I saw this earlier this year that just moved me to tears was the image of uh, someone said, you know, think about you who had children and your kids come to you and they ramble their nonsense to you. And children, you speak nonsense. You should, you should try harder. Um, but how you as a parent delight to hear just their rambling, incoherent, circular tales of whatever's going on in their mind because you just delight and love the child and you hear their stories and you're fascinated at what's going on with them. And maybe they drift off. Maybe they see squirrel and they're, they're distracted. Maybe they give half thoughts and they go away and they come back and finish the half thoughts three or four days later. And you delight in hearing your children speak and communicate and come to you so God delights in his children and in them communicating to him and loving him. So if you view God as a loving God, as abounding in the steadfast love of God, how will it transform your walk with him, your service to him, your joy in him? And so this is an invitation, my brothers and sisters. Remember the glory of God, the Lord, the Lord. Um, Sorry, I'm sorry, I, I lost that. The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the God we serve. This is the God we praise. This is the God we gather to hear from in His Word. The God we gather together to sing praises to and offer up our prayers and to, evan and to tell people of in our evangelism and our missionary activity. This God, merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. May his name be praised. May he be glorified. We pray together.